Well, happy 5th of July. We made it, right? Those of us who live in Lakewood, we made it through another uh, skirmish here on the uh, DMZ, I think. I don't know. It's anybody, who else lives in Lakewood? Just a show of hands. Like, it was loud. Well, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it was really, it was louder than usual last night. Let, let me ask you this. this is a, here's a rhetorical question, but let me ask this. Back in 1776, what do you think they did on the 5th of July? A any thoughts, any ideas what, what might have gone on on the 5th of July in 1776? What would you say? Still celebrating. Still celebrating? Yeah, I, I'm, not sure, I, I'm not so sure there was all that much celebrating on the 4th of July then, the, in 1776. I'm pretty confident that a lot of them were packing their escape bags because they knew now that we did this, we better get ready for that. And some of them, we know the stories are actually true of some of them having to literally escape by the skin of their noses, you know, just out the back door while the guards are coming in the front kind of thing. So it, it wasn't all just a big barbecue with hot dogs and fireworks and, uh, you know, uh, and there was celebration, but there was, a, there was a long war that came after that. They had to fight for their right, right? So, well, the thing is, um, I'm going to ask you a question, David. Are you a citizen of the U.S.? Not yet. Not yet. Working on it, though. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. So you're going to resonate with what I'm going to talk about sure. today. The, the 4th of July is a holiday that's really, or a day in our history that's really a, a more about citizenship than it is about military. I think it's great to celebrate the military uh, but it's really a citizenship uh, commemoration. This is a day that, that the founding leaders um, made a declaration. They, they finalized that because they had been working on it for a while and it actually had been presented earlier in the week and been signed on the 2nd and then finally finished and presented on the, on the 4th. So we've used the 4th of July as a commemorative day ever since. Um, but it's really about citizenship. So let me read to you the first sentence and the last sentence of the Declaration of Independence. I'd love to read the whole thing, but I got other stuff to say. So the first sentence is this. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. In the course of human events, it becomes necessary to take this step. It was implying that they didn't really want to do what they were doing. They, they up until that moment, were citizens of the, the nation of England. They were subjects to the king, but they were citizens, and they had a, a, a right to that by birth and by position that they could call on that for protection or they could claim it for whatever reason. So they were saying it became necessary. And the, as you know, the Declaration, if you read it, it has a whole long laundry list of these are the reasons why it's necessary. But that's how they started. How they ended it was this. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the, pro on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We're putting everything on the line to no longer be called a citizen of the nation of Eng England or the kingdom of England because it was a kingdom. I'm, I'm, put, I'm taking away that right and privilege, and I'm putting everything that I have, and we're all doing it together, by the way, 
to now call myself a citizen of these United States of America. Although I'm not even sure that phrase existed yet at that time. I think that might be a constitutional phrase rather than a declaration phrase. Because in between, if you really know your history, we had a confederation of states before we had a united... Okay. I don't have time for history class today. <laughs> so today I want to take a look at, and the title of the sermon is Dual Citizenship. Dual citizenship. That's why your story is interesting, right? So... Um, we have, all of us here have a dual citizenship. We're all citizens of the United States. You woke up today, if you were born in the United States, when you woke up today, your citizenship was renewed for another day. Same thing's true when you woke up today because this is the day the Lord has made. And I'm a citizen of heaven. And so I mostly want to talk about citizenship in heaven today and how do we live as citizens of that faraway land while we're in this land. So I want to take a look at that. And in the context, of it, it's going to be Paul's letter to the Philippians. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you open it up to the first chapter, 27th verse. And uh, I'm going to read this to you from a couple different translations. They'll be Both of them will be up on the board and to try to bring some nuance to this concept of being a citizen here on earth while our primary citizenship is in heaven. So Philippians 1.27. Paul, said, Paul writes this, and by the way, we, we call it a book of the Bible, but this is a letter. It's, it's really a very brief love letter, uh, and, and so to call it a book would be, you'd have to have really small pages in order to have enough to fold into a book. Okay, Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, some of you maybe did not see citizenship in there, so let me try to flesh it out for you a little bit more. In some of the translations, th there's a phrase in the beginning of this passage that in various translations gets translated differently. So sometimes that's a, a difficult concept, nuanced concept, for the translators to grab onto. But if you read across different Bibles, you can kind of get the fuller understanding. So in some translations, the phrase manner of life is translated as conduct. It might say conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So how we conduct ourselves, how do we go about living out daily lives. In a few other translations, um, it's further clarified as citizen or citizenship. So we would say this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you're standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Citizens of heaven, there's a code of conduct, if you will. There's a way that God knows if we're true citizens of heaven, this is how we're going to conduct ourselves. So, so why was Paul talking to the Philippians about citizenship? It's kind of an interesting thought. Like, usually when we read the letters of Paul, it's like, hey, get out of sin, you know, pay your taxes, you know, do, do the right things, do, stop worshiping these other idols. How does it that he came in the midst of this love letter? Because it's really, Philippians is filled with all these wonderful, uplifting passages of Scripture. And Paul, in the middle of that, is saying, let's talk about citizenship. Why would he be doing that? Well, a little bit of history on, on Philippi. Philippi was named after a Greek conqueror, Philip. Imagine that. He named a city after himself after he, he beat them in a war. So it was named something else before that. But 
that he was a Macedonian conqueror. He came after Alexander, was Philip, and he conquered it, and he said, I'm going to name that city after me. That was not an unusual occurrence in those days. People that conquered lands would take it over. I mean, we had Stalingrad in Russia, right? It wasn't always called that. But, and then after him, it got changed back into something else. And so Philip, and Philip might have had multiple cities named after him. His wife could have had a few and a couple of his kids. And, you know, and then the next conquering king would come in and change it again. Philippi is in Greece, what we know as Greece right now. It's the first place where a, in Europe, in the continent of Europe, where a church was planted by Paul in his travels. Up until then, his missionary travels had all been in the Middle East or in Asia. That, and so culturally, he was more well-suited to traveling around in those areas. He had more people, more things in common. This was the first place in a culture that was really different that he was able to plant a church. The way he planted it was, and you can read about this in, in Acts, he, uh, he and his entourage went to the river. To, they, w they were on their travels. They went to the river to find a place to pray, so a quiet place to get away to pray. And some women were down by the river, and they were curious about what's going on. And they said, who are you? What are you doing here? And he shared the gospel. And a woman named Lydia got born again. She got saved. And she happened to be a fairly wealthy person in that community. She was a traded trader of garments, especially pr the color purple, which was extremely val valuable and rare. Now, it turns out that Philippi was also, just in general, a very wealthy region. There were gold mines near Philippi, and so it, it attracted people wanting to make their fortune, but it also attracted, once Rome came on the scene, it attracted very many Romans who wanted to live there and control there. It became an, a place where soldiers, once they completed their service, returned to so that they could settle there because they saw the wealth of that area. So in many ways, it was becoming more and more of a Roman place. And in fact, by the time Paul's writing this letter, he's writing it to them as citizens because their citizenship in the Roman Empire has become one of the primary driving factors of their lives. They spoke Latin rather than they dressed like the Romans did in Rome. They had all the latest Roman fashions. They had adopted the names of the Roman gods. They, everything about them was, let's see if we can be as much like Rome as possible here in Philippi. Rome liked that. That was a good thing for Rome. But it was really good. So Paul's writing to them because their citizenship was one of the most valuable things that they actually had. Even though many of them were not from that area, they had come to another area to adopt this new thing and to be proud of it. And so there they were. And so he's saying, let's talk about citizenship. Let's talk about the way you live your lives within the context of your citizenship. And so he knew that if he brought that to their attention, it would catch their attention. That maybe other factors about you know, life that were, that were more true in his uh, Middle Eastern communities, their culture would grab a hold of things differently citizenship was vitally important to Rome and to these people in Philippi. It was, it's a basis of the Roman way of living and governing. It's, we have that here in our world now. right? The Western civilization is based a lot on Greco-Roman stuff, and being a citizen is still vitally important. That's why July 4th is an important holiday, because we celebrate we're citizens of this great nation. So Paul uses their love of Roman citizenship as a way of teaching them about their heavenly citizenship. Look at Philippians 3. Turn over to Philippians 3, 17 through 21st verses. And he says, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine 
and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they only think about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So here we have this, Paul's very strongly saying, our citizenship in heaven is the thing that matters above all things. And that there are those who, even among you, who are proud of their citizenship, but their appetites are for the things of the world. Their concerns are the, th are the world's concerns. And, but yet he says, and they're going to go to destruction, but yet our citizenship being in heaven, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and by which he's going to come back and put everything under control is going to raise and perfect us. The same power. Imagine something so powerful and so gentle at the same time. Imagine that. It could bring life, but yet he could also just transform us. So these Philippian Christians, of which we don't know how many there were, but you have to imagine it wasn't the megachurch. I don't know. It could have been, but they had their dual citizenship, and they were trying to sort that all out. And so this is the point that Paul needed to bring to them. Don't be so caught up in your pride of your earthly place when it's really about where you're heading eventually that needs to go. Now, um, I'm a citizen of, of Lakewood, Pierce County, Washington, United States of America. And, and I've got my name someplace in Pierce County, I think it is. My name is written on one of these really big books, right? That's how we used to vote, right? We used, when you used to vote, you used to go in and they would leave kind of through. I'm old enough to remember when they actually had the... Now, then, they, then they went for a while where they printed the forms out. You just found your name on Alpha. And now we send it in. But somewhere in Pierce County, there's one of those big books. And my signature's on there. My name is written in that big book, right? So that, that means that I can prove I'm a citizen of heaven. If I need a second form of ID, I just go down to the bank because my name is written on a little card that says he's got an account here. He's got treasures here in our little... Well, I just want to tell you, as a citizen of heaven, your name is written on a big book, too. And your treasure's up there, reserved for you. And the, and the person who wrote your name has much better handwriting than you do. Permanent marker, and you can read it clearly. You read my signature, you might go, who was that again? But you read my signature, my name written in the book of heaven, you will be no question. And my treasure is reserved. My room is already being made perfectly for me. That's what being a citizen of heaven is about. And Paul's here to remind them, I'm here to remind you. Paul wrote something simple, similar to the Colossians. In, in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, he said, Since you've been raised to new life in Christ, or with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Think about that, he says. You've died to this life to take up the other ones. In other words, while we are here on earth, citizens of this earth, 
we have to focus on our heavenly citizenship. We need to let our heavenly citizenship influence our earthly citizenship and not the other way around. So the challenge then for us becomes how do we harmonize those? How do we blend those together? How do we, how do we find a way to make it through the next day, the next week, the next month? How do we do that? Um, how do we make it so that our hearts and our minds wanting to be so much with Christ and with God, but yet our flesh cries out, that's wrong, or why can't we have it like we used to, or I like this this way. Peter gives us some insights to this. And I, and I want to tell you that I know that maybe some of what you're going to hear in this sermon today might not be the most popular thing you want to hear, but I think I read someplace on the internet today, this week that a pastor who I, I'm acquainted with and have great affection for wrote that my job as a pastor is not to make friends but to make disciples. So here we go. 1 Peter 2.11 through 17 says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. For the Lord's sake, you know, for God's sake, Submit to all human authority, whether the king is the head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Don't you wish we could stop there? Respect everyone and love the family of believers. The next sentence is, fear God, respect the king. Now we could take the word king out of this, or rulers out, and we could put in mayor, governor, president. Because we're citizens of heaven, we're supposed to live like a model citizen on earth. And if earthly laws do not violate heavenly laws, then we're to follow them. But if earthly laws and heavenly laws are in conflict and they don't agree, then we're to follow heavenly laws, understanding there may be a consequence for not following an earthly law. Did I make my point clear? We got it, right? That's how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to Fear God, respect the king. Let me give you some more on this. Romans 13, you're going you're gonna to know these verses. I think you've heard them before, but Romans 13, 1 through 7. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. Now, it doesn't say they'll be punished here. It just says they will be. We might have to face God one day. An answer to that. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants, sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They're God's servants, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. 
So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. To keep a clear conscience. Our conscience is a piece of us that we have, that we know that God exists, because it's where we understand right and wrong. God builds us with a conscience so that we can understand his ways and his righteousness. And I want mine to be clear, so I'm submitting, because God commands it. And now it goes into another paragraph, which we all love to hear. Pay your taxes. For government workers need to be paid. Government workers need to be paid. They're serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them, and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Okay, God, I get if we have to. <laughs> well, there is that, right? How did Jesus pay his taxes? Right? He sent Peter fishing. Well, Jesus did teach and demonstrate about this concept of how do we submit to God but also submit to the earthly things. And, and I have, I'm sitting thinking, like, I wonder how long they sat around thinking up this latest can we trick him scheme question to see if we could get, you know, if he answers it this way, then the people will be really happy, but the authorities can arrest him. And if he answers it this way, then the authorities will go, ah, because the people would have been mad. And they asked him, should we pay taxes? You know, that was the trick question, right? Should we pay, is it lawful for us to pay Roman taxes? That was the question. And, uh, well, if he answers it one way, the people are going to be like, yeah, don't pay the Roman taxes down with Rome. It would, it, right? It's too much already. Yeah. But then the Romans can come in and say, he said don't pay the taxes, and so you know, we're gonna, he's a rebel, we're going to arrest him. But if he says, yes, we should pay the taxes, then the people are like, whose side are you on anyways? Well, what does Jesus say? He says in uh, Matthew 22, he says, render under Caesar what is the things that are Caesar's and under God the things which are God's. He was pretty good at being a citizen of the earth and a citizen of heaven. And guess what? He didn't go on to have a long debate about that. That's it. Give to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, what else can we do here? Anybody need to be healed? What, you know, are you hungry? Come to the bread of life. I mean, he, he wasn't about to spend a lot of time on all the politics of it. He was a good citizen of both. The other person that, that, uh, that I thought about as I was... Uh, preparing for this message was Esther. You know the story of Queen Esther, right? Talk about being a stranger in a strange land. You know, Peter talks about being foreigners, right? Sojourners or strangers in strange lands. Here's Esther. She's, she's in a, an ethnic and, and faith-based minority in this land. And the queen, Vashti, gets disposed because, heaven forbid, she's got a mind of her own and she asks the king a question. And he's like, ah, why do you get me a new queen? And so all the pretty girls got to be brought in to become queen, and she didn't want any part of that, but she, it's like, well, got to go do B, you know, so she did. She got that, like, selected to be the queen. I mean, I'm really cutting through the story fast, right? <laughs> so it's not what that sermon is about, but she's a minority in so many different ways, and there's a, there's a lot of rivalry between her uncle Mordecai and... Uh, Haman, who's the assistant to the, the evil assistant to the king. And so Haman gets a law passed. In those days, if the king made a law or a decree, he couldn't just say, oops, no, forget it. He would have to write another law, right? And so he, Haman actually tricked him into writing a law that says, all, this, all the Jews 
have to give up all their weapons, and anybody who wants to can go into their house, take all their stuff, and you're allowed to kill them, by the way. It's, it's all legal now. That's the law that there was. Let's just wipe this whole bunch of people out. It'll give all of us more stuff and more room and more swords. That's cool. So she finds out. Esther finds out about that. It's like, what do we do? And, and so what does Mordecai say? Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows that you've come to the kingdom? And isn't it interesting that they're in a kingdom, but she's part of a kingdom. And who knows that our place in the kingdom and the place in the kingdom aren't for such a time as this. That all of us have a place in this Lakewood kingdom and God's heavenly kingdom. And who could have imagined a minority multiple ways over under persecution comes to the place of influence to witness life. Now, the end of the story, by the way, on the whole Esther thing, I can't let it go without telling the end of the story. The king writes a new law and he says, the Jews can defend themselves. He didn't take away the previous law. It was still legal to kill them and steal all their stuff, but he wrote a law that it was legal for them to defend themselves. So there was a big war. They had to fight. It wasn't just all good because she served three really delicious meals and the king said, oh, never mind. He gave them a right to fight for what was theirs. We're in that kind of kingdom, right? Esther is not just a party book. It's a fighting book. The, the first half of it is just the prelude to, and they fought for their lives, and they prevailed. I need you to hear this. God knows his plans, and he's looking for us to be willing to trust him at all times. He knows his plans. Now, when I say the phrase, he knows his plans, in some, some of your minds, you're already meant to Jeremiah 29. God, knows, God says, I know the plans I have for you, and it's to benefit you and bless you and all that, right? You, some of your brains already went there. But I want to tell you that's not what I'm talking about because you don't want to go there. Because Jeremiah 29, God sent his people into exile. God did it. And they were like grumbling back at him saying, this isn't what we thought the kingdom of God was going to be all about. We're not sure we wanted to sign up for this or not. And he said, I know the plans I have for you. It's to prosper you. I got it all figured out. While you're there, be good citizens. Bless the cities that you live in. Pray for the welfare of that place. Be so prosperous that everybody around you go, who are they? What's going on? How did they get to be that? How do we get some of that too? How did you do that? That sounds like a divine appointment. We talked about that last week. It sounds like someone asking the question, how am I going to understand what's going on unless you tell me about that? Be a good citizen where you're at. I know the plans I have for you. It's to prosper you. So if we get it from that point of view, God knows his plans. What he's looking for us to do is be willing to trust him. Join the process. It might mean that things are going to be hard. It might mean that we're going to be challenged. That we're going to, like we sang today, we're going to be in the shadows. But God's going to be with us. There's going to be fearful times, but God's going to be with us. There's even going to be sunny times, and God won't desert us then either. What happens is, that's dangerous, is that sometimes we want to reserve the option to choose when we're going to be willing and not. And if our comfort or our physical capabilities, our wealth, some of those things start to get shaky. 
we reserve the right to decide whether we're going to be willing to follow God or not at that time. You know, God, let me just wait this one out. I'll catch you on the next lap. Well, that's how I'm, preachers preach to themselves first. You need to know that, right? I'm doing the tally on the 401k. If somebody certain gets elected, what's going to happen to that? Right? It's in the news, so that's how we go. Peter tells us that, that, that how we conduct ourselves as earthly citizens is a part of our Christian witness. So be careful how we live among your unbelieving neighbors, he says, so that they can see how you live and that you give glory to God and that they'll want to know how do we get some of that? How do we live like that? So, so if we roll back to Paul's letter to the Philippians and take a look at this scripture again, 127, let's see what he's really trying to pour out for them there. I'm going to read the scripture again above uh, Philippians 127. He says, he starts with, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. And then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you're standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Above all, above all. Listen to the way Jesus described being a citizen on this earth. In Matthew 5, he said, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is the salt if it loses its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll get thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You're the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights up a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, in the same way, live your life in a way that your good deeds shine out for everyone to see, so everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. I think some of the most encouraging little video snips that I've seen in the last month online have been people voluntarily coming after demonstrations and cleaning. Just showing up. Picking up trash, scrubbing off the walls, just showing up. It's not people that are paid. It's not, it's not we caught you, you. Young man, you spray painted that wall. You come back. I'm going to grab you by the ear and drag you over here until you clean. The, it's none of that. It's just voluntary people who said, I want to do something for my community. I'm a citizen. I'm proud of my city. I want it to clean. And they came. I've been encouraged by that because they're just letting their good works be seen. You know, sometimes uh, it's said that pastors and their families live in fishbowls. You know, we're kind of always on display and whatever, whatever we do, you know, no pressure, Hannah, right? You know, but it's said, right, that, that our kids, you know, but I want to tell you that we're all that way, not just to each other. But anytime you go into a store, Anytime you deal with your neighbor, people will know eventually that you're a Christian. They should know. They should know. And then once they do, they're watching. How are you going to treat them? How are you going to relate to them? How are you going to uh, uh, conduct yourself, as it says in the scriptures? Conduct yourself. How will you act in various situations? Uh, one of the things I think about that is they're hoping, like their hope, is placed in your God being real so that their proximity will mean their blessing along with yours. Our hope is in God and that somehow he'll be able to connect with them so that they will join the family. But they're hoping for the goodness of your God to come to them. Some of them might be 
vehemently against that, but deep inside, there's still a longing. There's still a wanting to say that, that could be true and that I could somehow be set free from what's got me in the position of pain and anger and torment. So they're hoping for your God to be true. That makes us ambassadors. We're ambassadors. Ambassadors who are from one place and represent one king but live in another place and, and, and represent the king there. If I was named an ambassador to Canada, you know, we switch places, right? If I became an ambassador to Canada, I'd be living in Canada and subject to the laws of Canada. I have to live as if I were a Canadian citizen while I am there. Now, there are certain diplomatic rights, and sometimes when you read a story about that, like, how did that diplomat's wife get away with crashing that car and wrecking that store, and, and then she could just leave? So sometimes there's diplomatic rights where they extend and they don't prosecute and all that, but some countries don't, don't adhere to that so much. And so, um, so just like if you're a traveler, if you're a sojourner in another land, you're still representing God in those places on earth we're that so Paul gives three words of instructions here in his letter to the Philippians he's good at that he's good at making a little list here's the three things to do so I'll give you Paul's little three three step list three things that you should do or keep doing concerning how to live our lives as citizens in Philippians 127 he says first of all stand strong he says let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent I might hear that you are standing firm in one spirit stand strong it can be difficult sometimes to go against the grain and to stand strong it can be really easy to just join the parade because that's what everybody's doing and it seems right or you feel so overwhelmed by the peer pressure to do it uh, I saw a, um, a photograph of a young women's soccer team this week on the internet they were all kneeling, except for one athlete who stood, but she had her hand on the shoulder of her teammate. And they asked her later what, what, what was going on. And she said, well, I, I'm only able to kneel before one person, and that's my Lord. But I stand with my teammate in her cause. And so sometimes we're going to be in a spot where we might have to take a stand that is very unpopular, very open to ridicule. But if you're following your Lord and you're, and you're obeying his commandments and, his, and you're a citizen of his kingdom, then we are called to do that. And sometimes that means there's a consequence. But we have to be open to that. Obeying God's laws might lead to earthly consequences. In order to do that, well, I think you have to know what you believe. I think you have to know what you believe. Peter says it really plainly. He says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Okay, got that. Check. In my heart, I revere Christ as Lord. He also says, be prepared, always be prepared, to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give the reason for the hope that you have. So, revere the Lord, be ready to give an answer. And the third thing he says is, do it with gentleness and respect. Right? A kind word can turn away wrath. But be ready stand strong second stand is a stand together and you're, you've heard this kind of thread you know we are family we could sing this song right pointer sisters right so <laughs> but we've heard this from us preaching you know Larry Josh and I all have been about this about being disciples but being the church and that we're not out there on our own and it's together that we endeavor to do things and it says 
Paul, Paul told the Philippians to stand strong and stand together with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. With one mind striving together. This phrase, striving together, uh, paints the picture, and it was commonly used when describing athletic contests, to strive. But he, in, he nuances the striving to say together. And so it's like team sport. It's like, it's like a football team getting in there together, except what it's really talking about, this, this specifically this verb really talks about wrestling. And so it's talking about, it's describing this picture to them as saying, you're all going to go into the wrestling arena together. You're all going to be in the same fight together at the same time. You're not going to send one wrestler at a time. You're all going to go in together. If you need a, a movie, Hollywood picture, think of some kind of gladiator movie. And the first couple guys are skinny as a rail and, you know, four foot nothing. And the sword is bigger than they are. And they throw them out there and they get slashed right away. And the crowd goes crazy because they're just stirring it all up. And they don't want to put the big show on till the end. But the big show is all the gladiators are in there all at the same time. And then the lions come, right? And then the floodwaters and the snakes. I don't know. But, you know, you imagine what you want out of all that. But they're fighting and they stand back to back. Because their armor covers the front, not the back. And they stand back to back and they fight together. They strive together because we're all going to make it together. And that's what Paul is saying. Stand together. Enter this as citizenships together. You have to have a singular purpose and a common faith. Be, be with one mind and one passion for the faith of the gospel. And then the last, the third one is stand faithful. Stand faithful. If we carry on from verse 27 and look at 1 Philippians and verses 28 through 30, Paul says, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. Don't be intimidated. Stand faithful. Faithful. Full of faith. Right? This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. Stand faithful. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We're in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. Paul was writing this letter from prison. Paul had been stoned and chained and shipwrecked and thrown overboard and stoned some more and, you know, now in prison. And he says, you have the privilege of trusting in Christ. We all love that one and the privilege of suffering for Christ. Not too many of us want to sign up for that one. The Philippian believers had to be under attack. They had to be going against the grain. It's all about the prophet. It's all about let's be like Rome. Let's get all... This is great because we don't have all the weird, bizarre politics of Rome. We just got this really nice place out here in the, far away in Greece that's beautiful and we get to be like Rome even though we're not. Sort of a gated community or something, right? I mean... You know, the Bible does tell us that everybody who calls himself a follower of Christ is going to suffer for it. It's going to happen somehow. It may have already happened to you, and I'm sorry if it did, but I'm sorry, not sorry kind of thing. Like Christ says, it's going to be that. Here's three things, not in your notes, but there's three things about suffering really quickly. Don't be surprised when you get attacked for your faith. Don't be surprised. Don't be ashamed when you're attacked for your faith. Christ said, blessed are those who are attacked for the faith. Instead, consider it your privilege to be identified with Christ. Isn't that what we claim? 
we follow Christ. And I want to be as close to him as I can possibly get. We love it that he says, I'll never leave you. Great. Stick with, wait, oh, wait, I'm with him. Wait, oh, I'm with <laughs> Okay, I guess I'm with him. And then the suffering. It's a privilege. We're associated with Christ because we chose to, and he chose to also. So let me conclude with a, with a couple things. And Val, you can come. If you want to come and play. Um, just want to maybe give you a couple of practical uh, pieces of advice, if you will, and then, um, yeah, and then I'm going to ask you to do something, and we'll pray. Um, I think there's some things that we need to continue doing as a church. We've been calling you to this for over a year, for a year and a half. We've been calling uh, our ministry less about having church and more about making disciples, and then we're all to become stronger and stronger disciples, and so you're going to hear me say some things you've heard, heard us say all through the time. I think you need to be in your Bible as much as possible. Be really well grounded. Read, study, meditate, discuss, learn. Keep learning. Keep opening your word. Um, you know, the, the letter to the Philippians is four chapters. It took me eight minutes to read it this morning. Eight minutes. Now, I have read it before, so I did recognize some of the words. But I promise you, I wasn't just skimming it to see how fast I could get through it. So give yourself a half hour. It's okay. And then once you do that one day, the next day pick up a different translation or look another translation up on the computer and read a different translation of the same Bible to get the nuance of it, to get a little bit more insight to it. Know your Bible. Second, we've got to work together. We've been saying that all along. We're in this together. We've got to be about each other. We can't. We're, there's no Lone Rangers. If you need help, if you need prayer, if you have a question, if you offer something. Just connect. There's no condemnation in us being the church and being and reminding ourselves often that we're here for each other. And then lastly, we need to be willing. Willing. God wants us to be willing. Are we willing to do whatever God asks of us and do whatever it takes? And you know, the thing is, that doesn't come naturally. That's where the struggle lies. I'll just get off for this trip because I see what's coming. So I'll move to New Zealand for this next decade because it, it's a lot more peaceful there until you learn about all the earthquakes <laughs> and fires and stuff. You know, there's no safe place. All right, so final thoughts. It's about citizenship. Well, citizenship comes with a vow. Citizenship and vows go together. Because I was born in the United States, I'm a citizen. All I had to do is wake up. All I had to do that morning was come out of my mom and I'm a citizen happens automatically. In fact, my mom could have been anywhere in the world and I'm still a citizen of the United States. But if I'm born there, I could also maybe be a citizen of another place because of actual location. Right? Okay. But we have a friend who's moving from Canada. He's presently studying because he's going to take a test. He's going to have to prove his knowledge of our history and culture. And then, once he's passed that test, he's going to have to stand up put his right hand up in the air, stand before a magistrate of some sort, and take an oath. I'm going to read you what the oath says. By the way, the 4th of July is traditionally a very popular day for this oath. I have no idea if they did it yesterday or not, because the government buildings are closed, and you can't put a bunch of people in the same room, and, you know, and I don't know if they could do that by Zoom or not, but anyway. Um, okay, here's what the oath says. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, 
potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. That's the oath that new citizens take in order to actually be able to wake up the next morning as a citizen. Now there's a certain few phrases in that that I read that they are allowed to uh, decline, like the so help me God, that's fine. The government has allowed, allowed for some of that. But I wonder how many of us who are natural born instead of naturalized have ever thought about that kind of an oath. If you're in the military, I know you have, because it sounds a whole lot like the military oath. And I know guys clearly who say, once I took that oath, that's my oath forever. And I respect that commitment that they make. But I wonder how many of us as citizens have done that. And in the same way, I want to ask you this day, when was the last time you renewed your oath to God? I've renewed my oath to God. You know, we all took one. If you're, if you're saved, if you call yourself saved, Christian, born-again person, and you're a citizen of heaven, you took an oath. I, it wasn't as spelled out precisely. It's not that, you know, you know, I don't have the sinner's prayer card to hand out to every person, and we all say it together. I mean, my oath was this. Jesus, I believe that our, your God, your Father, God, God, I believe you raised him from the dead. I believe he came, he lived on this earth for my sake and died for my sins, and you raised him from the dead. And I believe that in my heart. And I'm saying it out loud with my mouth. I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth, Jesus is my Lord. That's my oath. And if you're born again, Christian person, that's your oath. 